Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. As leaders of some 20 economies around the Asia-Pacific region are gathering in San Francisco, economic growth or how to ensure a long-term growth has become the focus of the meeting. Closely related to that topic is the upcoming summit between Chinese President Xi Jinping and his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden. What can we expect out of San Francisco? How does U.S. strategic competition affect the economic performance in the region? Are we going to see the relationship between Beijing and Washington stabilized or even improved after the summit? With these questions in mind, I'm glad to be joined by Dr. Xiao Yuquan, Senior Research Fellow at the Shanghai Institutes of International Studies, Wang Dan, Chief Economist at Henson Bank, and Sean Stein, Chairman of the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai, and Anthony Chan, former Chief Economist at J.P. Morgan Chase. Welcome to Dialogue. Dr. Xiao Yuquan, I will start with you. you know, brief us, you know, what is APEC and what is the role of APEC in today's world? Uh, Qingdu, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, APEC is a very uh, important regional economic cooperation organization. It's a kind of a platform for the regional countries, economies to come together to talk about the regional economic integration and cooperation. Um, so uh, every year we will see those uh, leaders of the economies coming together, talk about the rules, the interests, um, the, the relevant issues that they're interested in. But this time I think APEC is uh, comparatively speaking less important. Most of the people are watching closely. They're following with the summit between President Xi Jinping and President Biden. Mm -hmm. Anthony, you are in the States. So what do you think would be the top priority for the economies on the Pacific Rim for the gathering? I think that the primary goal is to try to make uh, the relations between the two largest uh, economies in the world, namely the United States and China, uh, to improve. I think uh, President Xi uh, said it best uh, when he told a congressional uh, uh, delegation that there are a thousand reasons uh, to make U.S. and China relations uh, better and no reasons uh, to make it worse. So that, I think, uh, is going to frame the meeting to try to improve uh, those relations. Because as they always say, when two large elephants fight, uh, the other smaller ants uh, get hurt. And so these 21 member economies uh, certainly depend on these two large economies to improve their relations. Uh, well, China-U.S. relationship, uh, we certainly will touch upon that. Uh, but before that, uh, Wang Dan, uh, we know like if you look back a little bit, you know, it used to be uh, the theme, or this long-term theme of uh, free trade and globalization for the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation leaders. Uh, you know, in 2016, for example, uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping and the then U.S. leader Barack Obama, they endorsed a shared vision of a free trade area of the Asia-Pacific, uh, a region-wide free trade agreement. Uh, so that would include basically every uh, APEC members, including both China and the United States. Uh, where are we now, you know, given what happened over the past years? Well, China-U.S. competition had really intensified after 2016, and we have seen the peak of the trade tension around 2018. 
Ever since then, the China-U.S. trade uh, had been declining. But when you look at the details, the picture is rather different because although China and the U.S. are caught in the middle, actually the broader Asian area benefited from this competition. We've seen the industrial relocation away from China to ASEAN countries, some to India, and the investment is more diversified into the third world countries, mostly in Africa and Latin America. So for China and the U.S., the competition will continue no matter what. It is just what in this transition can happen to other middle-sized countries and smaller countries. And that's something the big two powers need to really consider. Uh, but do you see, you know, other people would say because of the tension or the rising tension between China and the U.S., the two largest economies, uh, many countries in the middle, uh, they are, you know, caught uh, in the middle and sometimes they face oppression maybe, you know, to choose side. Uh, do you think, uh, you know, the tensions may have some, I would say, positive side effect? Uh, do you also see the negative effect probably because of the competition there? Oh, for sure. Uh, for the business world, we look at things from the cost perspective. And when there's big tension between two large economies like the U.S. and China, the cost associated with geopolitical competition has so uh, much increased in doing business in China. So now we see two different trends. Uh, global companies either are aiming to be in China for China, producing things targeting the Chinese market, or they want to strip their Chinese identity. Even for some domestic Chinese companies, they have to be in disguise, trying to pretend they're not Chinese companies in order to really do business in Europe and America. And this trend has created this parallel system that has divided the data, divided the economic system, made the globalization less globalized. And that is not a positive trend for the economy in the long term. Mm -hmm. uh, Sean, you are in the business. Uh, I guess you uh, tend to agree with one then. But also, if you look at uh, probably the negative uh, effects of, uh, of these uh, tensions or the change of policies, you see the Biden administration has focused on French-shoring, you know, de-risking and denial, of course, of Chinese access to uh, so high-end technologies. Uh, uh, the practice, you know, many people will accuse that of uh, protectionism. But that probably will hurt the U.S. leadership as the U.S. in Washington stress very much about its leadership, especially at such uh, uh, an occasion, I would say. Um, yeah, what I would say is I think that what we've really seen that what competition has done is it's accelerated trends that had already existed. We had already been seeing China trying to move up the value chain uh, in its production. We've been seeing costs rising in China. So really, there have been a lot of reasons for companies to be expanding their footprint outside of China as well as inside. And so COVID accelerated that, and so has competition. And so I think one of the things that companies learned, whether it was an American company or a Chinese company or a European company, was that the idea that you could have you know, a single source of supply for key commodities or key products uh, is something that just isn't sustainable in the long term. And so, as Wang Dan said, they have to look at options which raise costs. And that means maybe uh, continuing with the production in China, but then adding other sources and sites of production in Southeast Asia or in the subcontinent or in Mexico. So, while certainly it's been part of the Biden administration's policy to encourage uh, the French shoring and onshoring. Um, really, those are the types of things that businesses have been looking to do for their own reasons uh, because of what they went through over the last couple of years in trying to ensure supply. Uh, so uh, I think that's something that's going to be continued despite the meeting between 
uh, the two leaders, that dynamic isn't going to change and the underlying economics of those decisions aren't going to change. Uh, well, Shao Yuqian, you know, an official uh, from an APAC research arm, uh, Carlos uh, uh, Kuriyama, uh, basically told the uh, Sub-China Morning Post, uh, quote, APAC economic growth is getting more stable than in previous years. Uh, we can see that economic growth has improved. There, there are uh, promising signs in APAC, but it is walking a tight rope amid downside risks, basically referring to uh, the U.S.-China tensions. Uh, in, so in what way you know, the, tension, uh, the tensions may have affected or will affect uh, the region's economies? I think, first of all, uh, the intense competition or the very difficult relationship between China and the United States has have already sent very negative uh, signals to the regional economies that we have to take care of ourselves. And, uh, and it's very possible that the two economies go, are going to decouple with each other. So uh, what are we going to do? So uh, this kind of a message is a lot of uh, full of uncertainty are full of uh, a, a kind of a, a, a fairness for those regional countries. Uh, at the um, on the other front, the regional economies they are trying to build multilateral mechanisms by themselves, uh, in in order to avoid a kind of a situation that China and the United States both neither of them are going to participate into this uh, regional economic integration. So what we, uh, what we have seen is that Japan, Australia, India, all those economies uh, and also ASEAN countries, they are trying to help themselves. So, so I think it's uh, very urgent for China and the United States, two biggest economies, uh, the leaders of the two biggest economies to send clear signals that they will take responsibilities uh, to promote the regional economic integration and uh, they are responsible play players here in the region. Oh, well, you mentioned uh, responsibility or responsible player, especially for the two largest economies, uh, of course, not only in the region, but also around the world. Uh, do you think they are heeding the calls or the expectations from other countries or other, uh, you know, especially smaller uh, players uh, in, in the rest of the world right. uh, for them probably to stabilize right. their relationship. Or, you know, uh, you know from another perspective, uh, we are facing crisis in Ukraine, in Gaza. Isn't this time mm -hmm. for China and the U.S. probably to work together to handle those uh, more mm -hmm. pressing challenges? Uh, yes, I, I think these are good questions. Most of the observers, the regional economies, I think uh, up to now they are very cautious uh, with regard to the coming summit between President Xi and President Biden. Uh, they are just uh, trying to wait and see, uh, to see the results. Uh, on the other side, uh, you talk about Ukraine, about Gaza. These two conflicts are really uh, 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 catch uh, all of us' attention because a lot of the uh, 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 kind of a hum humanity disaster here. And uh, as I said, China and the United States, um, these two countries have very different uh, perceptions regarding the two conflicts, especially in Ukraine. And uh, I, uh, yesterday I, I had some uh, Zoom meeting with American colleagues. Uh, I, I think they were still worrying kind of a, a China-Russia alignment in, in uh, the Israel-Hamas conflict. So this kind of a strategic distrust is uh, very deep between China and the United States. But uh, 
my personal view is, uh, especially from the U.S. side, I think the two countries can do uh, something together with regard to these uh, two conflicts. For example, uh, in Ukraine, uh, the nuclear safety, uh, the food security, those issues are the two countries they can work together. And with regard to Israel and Hamas conflict, I think no country, neither China nor the United States, would like to see the conflict uh, uh, become a kind of a regional conflict. Uh, they would try to limit the negative implications for the Middle East regional security. So I think these two countries can really do something together. If they cannot cooperate, at least they can coordinate on some fronts. At least they can coordinate. Uh, obviously, there are advantages to, uh, for them to work together. Uh, Sean, let's take a look at where we are now in terms of this bilateral relationship, especially the trade uh, and, and uh, related uh, aspects. Uh, you know, the ongoing trade war and attack war uh, that started back uh, during the Trump administration has impacted uh, you know, both sides in the public and the business sectors. Where do you see this competition going? Is there an end in sight? Well, I think the Arab strategic competition is here to stay. But I can tell you what it looks like from the perspective of the business community and from the foreign investment community. Um, despite all of the talk about strategic competition, if we look at the amount of bilateral trade, just the total level between the United States and China today and where we were two years ago, there's significantly more trade between the two countries. I think it increased over a period of two years, it increased by about $180 billion, if I recall the statistics side by, by the US side. And so what I think that means is, what I think we've been seeing is that earlier in the Biden administration, I think there was a big fear on the part of China that the two economies were heading for decoupling or that the US side wanted to decouple. What I think has been reassuring to the business community is the very clear statement by the US side uh, by Janet Yellen that, quote, decoupling would be disaster for the two economies. So I think the two countries recognize that. But instead, now where I think strategic competition is going is that on the U.S. side, the U.S. side realizes that there are parts of the economies that are so interdependent that you can't really decouple, and that's not in anyone's interest to. But I think so the areas where the U.S. want to sort of build maybe more security in their own economy, you know, they're referring to as de-risking or diversifying sources of supply. So I think that the competition is actually easing between the two countries as the areas where the U.S. feels it wants to control trade are, uh, are narrowed and are defined. And then again, from the business community, though, the business community doesn't see competition as a one-sided thing. They don't see this as just something that the U.S. is pushing on on the business community. They also see similar issues coming from the Chinese side. Anytime we see Chinese government policies that favor Chinese companies over foreign companies in any sector, in government procurement, for example, or uh, in the requirement that foreign companies need to operate with, say, a joint venture partner, then the business community sees that as the Chinese side engaging in competition with the U.S. and with the West and with other countries. So I think both sides, I think, have taken steps recently to ease the intensity of competition in a way that can help the economies of both countries. And I think that that's a great development. And our hope is that the meeting between the two leaders will help, even though there is, as I think other panelists have mentioned, really deep distrust between the countries. I think both countries realize that it's in their own interests to manage competition in a way that allows both economies to grow and that allows both countries to feel secure in supply and other strategic areas.
Mm -hmm. uh, uh, well, one day, you know, uh, Sean mentioned about uh, you know, probably the impossibility to decouple for the two economies, and uh, the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, spoke at a press conference that the U.S. does not want to uh, decouple from the Chinese economy. Uh, but at the same time, you know, from the Chinese perspective, you do see the U.S., uh, for example, uh, tightening uh, investment in China, U.S. investment in China, and uh, U.S. export restrictions of uh, high-end technologies, including chips, uh, etc. Uh, so, you know, like, many people would have doubts about that kind of a declaration or statement. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, the decoupling is real. So when we look at what's going on for those companies that are on the U.S. entity list, um, they do not have access to the latest technology, especially in the semiconductor uh, industry. And when we look at a broader picture of, high, of China's high-tech industry, there has been a wide restriction on the talent, uh, what kind of people can work for the Chinese high-tech company, and also um, whether they could use certain chips uh, uh, related in AI um, uh, industry, and also cloud computing. So it did look like that the U.S. originally wanted to contain certain transformative technologies application in China. But at this point, to me, it looks more like they would like to reverse the technological advancement in China. And since the, so far, the export control is not only restricted to one or two technologies, as in chips, um, but quite targeted to those high-tech companies across different industries, including biotech. So I think the competition is quite real. But when it comes to decoupling <coughs> all kind of trades or consumer goods, and that's unrealistic from the U.S. side. Its pharmaceutical industry, for example, heavily dependent on China. It doesn't matter how hard it tries. It can't source from somewhere else. And when it comes to green transition, on the solar panel, wind turbine, it pretty much still rely on Chinese companies and China tech. So I would, um, I would say this, the decoupling only happens for the high-tech industry between China and the U.S. It doesn't affect other industries in both countries, um, but also decoupling or de-risk do not apply to the rest of the world. China never wanted to decouple or can decouple from the rest of the world, but in high-tech with the U.S. is reality. Mm -hmm. uh, Anthony, uh, if you look at the recent uh, uh, happening, for example, between the two countries, you do see frequent visits of senior level officials from both sides, and uh, there's a lot of talk between them. Uh, you know, whether decoupling or de-risking, uh, what do you see as the trend? Are we going to deeper in terms of decoupling, or are we going to reversing uh, reverse a little bit of the uh, of the relationship. Let's say you know probably the put uh, the relationship on a firmer uh, sport, firmer ground, uh, maybe even improve the relationship. I like the way you categorize it uh, to decouple a little or or de-risk a little. I think that that's the, going to be the final uh, trend. Uh, there's no question that there has been some uh, de-risking, or some people have called it as Wang Dang called it decoupling. Because if you look at Chinese exports to the United States, it peaked at 2.1 trillion, and now that number in the latest month is down down to 1.7 trillion. I think that the impact of this meeting initially is to stabilize uh, these figures to make sure that they do not deteriorate or go down from these levels, 
And hopefully, as your question uh, implies, that over time, as both countries gain a better understanding uh, of their true intentions and, and the true goals, that both countries are struggling uh, to sustain economic growth, that these numbers will, in fact, over time, with better understanding between both countries, start to improve again and, and move back towards their previous peak. Uh, well, Anthony, you mentioned about the true intentions uh, you know, from both sides. I mean, obviously, at least from the Chinese perspective, I think the U.S. has made it very clear that is to slow down the Chinese tech development, to slow down the Chinese innovation. And, um, you know, in, and, and against such a background, you know, what do you expect from the Chinese side in terms of policy toward the U.S.? Because it seems very hard to resolve this. This is not a, a dilemma because this is a structural issue here. It's like more like a zero-sum competition. Uh, and, and the impact we are seeing is like, uh, you know, probably less people-to-people -people exchange, less visa issued to students or scholars for both sides? Well, I think that the, uh, on the U.S. side, uh, the, the talk has been that they want to uh, limit the technology insofar as it can help uh, the military, but not uh, to hurt uh, the companies. Now, obviously, if you look at what's actually happened, uh, it's clear that uh, there's been a little bit of extreme uh, behavior uh, in this uh, direction. My hope and expectation is that over time, as both countries uh, start to uh, feel more comfortable with each other, that we can, in fact, uh, gravitate to having trade taking place more freely and only restrict the trade on both sides, from the Chinese side and the U.S. side, only if it has military implications. The problem is that when you take that position, uh, it could easily uh, slip uh, into a, a more extreme position. And it's easy to argue that we may already be slipping in that direction. But I hope that over time, with greater understanding uh, between both countries, realizing that they're economically interdependent uh, over the long run, both of them cannot continue to grow on a sustainable basis unless they get along with each other that this issue uh, will, in fact, show some improvement. Mm -hmm. uh, Yuchun, if you, you know, earlier Sean mentioned about the management of risks, management of the competition. Uh, the U.S. side, indeed, they talk a lot about you know, managing the competition or managing the risks, so we need effective communication channels. But for the Chinese side, you know, we stress very much about the prevention of risks. Why should we have risks in the first place? Let's do something to stop or prevent any potential of risks, either military or in other uh, areas. Do you see there's a, such a difference? You know, probably we should engage each other in that respect to have a better understanding of each other. Yes, uh, I think you correctly uh, talk about these differences. Uh, these differences between the two sides are huge. Uh, I think basically uh, the two sides have very different strategic framework to deal with this uh, bilateral relations. The United States calls it a strategic competition. I don't think the Chinese side agree with that definition. It's not, China doesn't want to have this so-called strategic competition with the United States. So when President Biden mentioned use the word guardrail or build the floor, all these concepts, um, uh, the Chinese side uh, don't agree with uh, these concepts. Uh, but I, I agree that the two militaries, they have to talk with each other. But the um, but the, um, but the important thing is, uh, what is the principle of this dialogue? Uh, it cannot just a dialogue for dialogue's sake. 
uh, we have to uh, manage our differences. We have to really listen to the other side's concern. So when the Chinese side talk about uh, the hollowing out of the U.S. one-China policy, I think the Washington side should really listen carefully and to uh, think about their policy. Right now, the U.S. policy tried to strengthening its military relation with the Taiwan Authority is really a kind of a, a negative uh, uh, thing, a, a tendency or a, a trend. So uh, if the United States continue to do that uh, in, the, in the future, I think uh, they, they, they only, when they talk about guardrail, uh, built the floor, the Chinese side just won't accept that. Uh, you are talking about the Taiwan question here. You know, Elon Musk uh, the other day said that you know, in, in peaceful means or military means, you know, China will achieve national reunification with Taiwan. I mean, with the continued U.S. support, military support to Taiwan, uh, are we seeing probably growing danger or risks between the two sides uh, over Taiwan Island there? I think that uh, the central government policy so far uh, is still peaceful reunification. It's Beijing's policy towards Taiwan, so and it's very clear. It's very clear, and uh, uh, and the right now, I think the U the United States has learned wrong lessons from the uh, Ukraine Russia conflict. They tried to arm Taiwan. They tried to the so called raise the capability of Taiwan military. Uh, it it's it's just no way to go, and it's really sent very negative message to towards Beijing because right now it's DPP in power in Taiwan and their party platform is still seeking Taiwan independence. So uh, we, we are going to have uh, a, an election uh, in the coming uh, January in Taiwan. So I think it's uh, very important for the Biden administration to deal with this issue carefully. Mm -hmm. uh, Sean, of course, uh, there is a, a you know, presidential election in the United States. So, you know, when it is uh, the, uh, you know, if, if you listen to the rhetoric of the politicians on the campaign trail, often uh, no one can afford it to be, to appear to be soft on China. Uh, so how will that uh, in any way uh, may affect the relationship between the two sides? I mean, if we uh, say achieve something positive out of the summit between the two leaders, will that be derailed because of the uh, election there? Oh, so I think that I think that the what has been accomplished between the two leaders starting in Bali last year is I think there was the consensus in Bali that it was in neither country's interest to allow the relationship between the two countries to become too unstable and to become too difficult and too unmanageable. And I think what we're going to see in the dialogue between the two leaders is a renewed commitment to keep stability uh, in that relationship. Now, they're going to do that, and I think it's going to continue despite the sort of rigors and the ups and downs of the election season for one simple reason. And that's because the two leaders recognize that it's in their interest to manage the relationship well and to, uh, to use the phrase that I think some of my colleagues didn't love, but to put a floor under the relationship. Um, it means the Biden administration has invested very heavily in stabilizing the relationship. And the calculus behind that is not going to change going into the election. Many thanks to our guests. You can also find us on the CGTN app on YouTube. Thank you for being with us. See you next time.